HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow the show on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. Joining me today in the studio is Hector Marcel. Hector is an entrepreneur, an organizational change consultant, a Buddhist teacher, the director of the Three Jewels Outreach Center, and more. Hector and I met through a business peer exchange that I'm participating in, and Hector's leading the group. Uh, the group meets once a month to discuss and work on different facets of improving our businesses. Thanks, Hector, for taking the time to join me today. It's my pleasure. What an awesome thing to know that you're doing. It's uh, it's great to have you here, and I think we have a lot of a lot of ground to cover. We may not get to all of it, but we'll see what we can fit into the next thirty minutes or so. I want to start off by apologizing to my listeners. I last week said it was my final show of the season. It was due to a scheduling snafu, and you know when you run your life on on your phone and your Google Calendar, and you forget to extend your schedule one extra week you look at it and you're like oh i don't have that next week so this must be the last one and i was wrong so luckily i realized it last week uh, after my show and after i told you all that last week was the final show of the season that's not true this is uh the final show of my first season here on heritage radio and i reached out to hector uh to join me so when you meet somebody hector and you describe yourself um what do you say i know your email signature <laughs> says human so that's a good start it says person oh person yeah, sorry yeah no that's okay it's a hard thing to do you know because identity is so much of what we think we are and so i i took a conscious look at myself a long time ago and said what's my most relatable thing and i'm just a person you know so i'd have to go 
in a work setting and introduce myself as the change manager or if I'm in a different setting, a meditator. So it really depends where I am. Sure. And often I avoid leaving a solid structure for people to grab onto if I think that's okay. Sure. I, I think that's a, it, it's interesting to, to be so self-aware as to realize that, right? We all describe ourselves differently whenever you are in a different situation. You know, you are one thing to one person. I'm a father to my children, but exactly. if I meet somebody and they say, oh, what do you do? I don't often say I'm a dad. That's not, you know, but it is a big part of who I am and, and what I do, uh, for sure. Uh, you uh, describe yourself uh, as an organiza- organizational, it's a hard word for me to say, change consultant. Um, can you tell me a little more about what that part of you is and what that yeah, means? Certainly. That's probably also the reason for the title change on the business cards, because uh, that sounds like a long, boring set of letters put together that really doesn't have much meaning for people. And I think part of organizational change management or any kind of change management, looking at the changes that people go through in lives, whether it be at work or at home or globally, um, has to do with disarming an old state of being and enacting a new way of being. So putting person on the business card is a little disarming for senior executive CEOs of companies who are hiring me to you know, do some consulting that's important to them. But it begins a conversation about identity and what we think needs to be let go and what we think is going to serve us and why in the future. So I don't know if that answered your question about organizational change, but in essence, that part of my life means that I usually go into large-scale organizations. We might have done Microsoft Windows 8, for example. And we look at the way we plan the change that's about to occur in their marketplace internally in the financial systems and the rest and try and manage that so there's more productivity, opportunity for people to do the things that they've been passionate to do but not been able to do. And so we use the change as an opportunity to revive and regenerate rather than Unmanaged change usually means people close off, stop doing things, stop communicating, and productivity and meaning in your business or your life starts to dissipate. Yeah. From what I know about you, you you have personally engaged in lots of change, right? So do you think that that has led to your work in change? It was a little bit conscious, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to know uh, what I could do in a society like our Western society that is uh, nine to five most, for most people having uh, identity that's the majority of a day related to your work and your working life and I wanted to do something that was congruent which I thought, uh, with what I thought was most important in the precious few human years that I have on the planet. So I knew that I, I wanted to evolve as a, as a being, as a person so I, I better do something in my majority of my day, the things that will pay my rent and engage with other people that will fuel that rather than turn it off. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you grew up in, or you were born in Buenos Aires. Yeah, when uh, I was very young. And then you moved to Australia? Yes. <laughs> How old were you when you moved? I was, uh, I was 11 when we moved to Australia. So, that oh, was so a, you had some childhood. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had a bunch of childhood yeah. um, in uh, South America. And that really was the essence of understanding the non-measurable uh, parts of change. Hmm. When people shift cultures, you get to see and experience viscerally uh, what it is like to be around people that have different customs, identities, ideas, and values. And then to become that, 
is a huge shift that is hard to quantify. So as, as an 11-year-old moving from South America to Australia, do you have any memory of what some of the like biggest cultural shifts were? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, language it was a, of course. an obvious barrier, but food was also. You know, so I was the kid with the smelly salami in the school where in, in 1978 in Australia, you know, salami and Western and, and, and South American foods like asado chimichurri and all those things. Sure. Very weird things to have. So an opportunity to be made fun of. And mm. for conflict, if, if we don't understand uh, another and they look different, smell different, eat different, for an undeveloped mind and definitely a child's natural mind or a human un unquestioned response, it's usually conflict or separation or making sure. fun of for fear of of being infected with the salami. Right. right. <laughs> when, I, when I was 15, my family moved from New York to California, which while, you know, language was the same, currency was the same, there was a huge cultural yeah. difference in those places for sure. And as a child, you are way more sensitive than that. You haven't yet figured out the rules of engagement. And so I think uh, children, migrant children or children moving locations, schools and so on, are really sensitive to that. But I actually, after all the change work, I think that's a beautiful opportunity to look at life as it really is, which mm -hmm. is continuously changing. So instead of being a negative experience, every change can really be a positive experience. doesn't matter how harsh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my wife and I talk in a sort of pie-in-the-sky sort of way about how interesting it would be to take our two children and move somewhere else, like really somewhere else, like Japan, yeah, to give wow. them an opportunity to experience a completely different culture, a different language before they get to the age of sort of forming these ideas and cliques and going through puberty and sort of all of those changes. Because I, f my, you know, I, I feel like they're just sponges right now. I mean, they're six and two, oh, and so you could just throw them into that, and they would just start sucking that up the same way they're sucking up everything they see here without any preformed conceptions about yeah. it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's actually a, a kind of internal programming and education and schooling that will only activate later on in life when you have to experience differences, culture merging and the rest. And if we don't get to do that, that's okay. I mean, we'll no, still, you know, they'll get to experience other cultures, I'm show sure. Them nice pictures. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we, we, we try. We certainly do it with food, right? I mean, we live in an age where it's very, you know, we made... My daughter helped me make sushi for dinner last night. And that, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my father worked for uh, Hitachi um, and worked with, you know, we used to go eat Japanese food. I mean, this is in the late 70s um, wow. when, you know, I would go to school talking about, oh, I had this great, it was raw fish. And everybody was like, Ugh. <laughs> that's disgusting. And now you can buy it everywhere, right? You can exactly. buy what passes for sushi in this country. That, you know, you can probably buy it at a gas station. In, yeah, true, true. Middle yeah, prepackaged yeah. in middle America. Yeah. That's true. Uh, was there anything that uh, you took to food-wise in Australia when you moved there that you thought was like, oh, this is so great, I'm so glad I found this, or you know, something you really loved as a kid? It was funny because you know, my parents did something consciously that was really quite amazing, which was from today on, we're Australian, we're no longer Argentinian. You're not allowed to speak Spanish at home. I don't oh, want so you having Spanish. It was a full kinda, cut. Huh. My dad was pretty angry that Argentina couldn't sustain his family. So he pretty much cut us off from a South American culture, which was really awesome because it meant that I had to learn the language. We had to learn the customs. But food was the only thing that we kept. Interesting. When, when you ask that question, it's like, my goodness, it's the only cultural thing that we kept. Because even the language we, we practiced at home 
to speak English. And, you know, that was a comedy of errors with mispronunciations from my parents and the rest. But food was the thing that brought us together and gave us this kind of nostalgia for the way things were until we got accustomed to Australia. Having said that, besides having asado and empanadas and uh, all the tortilla, which is like frittata, you know, um, Australian food was pretty boring. Like it was fish and chips. It was old style British thing. Chinese restaurants were a new thing in 1979 in Australia. Yeah, there was no Middle Eastern foods. There weren't any Japanese foods, which is now the dominant food over there, you know, culturally. And um, so there was there wasn't anything that we thought it was weird to have uh, sweetened chicken or sweet like it it felt like a weird taste. So we hadn't. we kept Argentinian food. I have to wonder about the, uh, the, the Chin- talking about the Chinese restaurants being a new thing there for me brings up a, a memory. I went to Ukraine years ago. I mean, now I guess 10 years ago, right after the Orange Revolution. And my sister-in-law was living there and my wife and I went there to, to visit. And she took us to what she described as her favorite restaurant in Kiev, which was a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> but it was terrible i mean the, the like the, i mean the food was edible it wasn't like we weren't going to get sick from it but it was nothing like chinese food that we knew from living in new york city and eating in chinatown there was dill wow in the food <laughs> in and chinese. what became clear is that you know the there were folks who had emigrated there from from some part of china and they wanted to have a chinese restaurant but they were using local ingredients right sure, so it was sure. dill in all the chinese food which was really <laughs> bizarre disconnect so what made it chinese was that the owners were chinese and the owners were chinese and it you know served with rice which is not you know really big in ukraine and you know it was served you know the some of the dishes were very similar i mean there was this sort of sweetened like red you know fried chicken but then there was like you know a soup with dill in it it was really <laughs> very strange um, on the way in, uh, because we're here at Roberta's, and we're looking out the window of the studio watching people eat pizza, you made reference that you have a story about pizza. Oh, I, I, I took an Uber over here, and the, the driver was this lovely man, and I wanted to know where he was from, and he said he from, he's from Uzbekistan, right? And uh, he'd only been here four years, so he told me his migrant story, and <clears throat> he complained about the food. He says, the only thing I don't like it uh, about here is how food doesn't have any substance. He says, um, I can go back home and I can have a melon and a piece of bread for breakfast and I don't have to eat all day because it sustains me. It's full of proper sugar. It's organic and so on. Uh, and then my child, who's six, is obsessed with pizza, so we can't go anywhere near a pizza place because he'll consume pizza after pizza after pizza. He goes, it's difficult to get a child not to eat uh, in a way that's unhealthy for him in the United States of America. I mean, at least in his perception or experience of it. I'm sure he hasn't come to Roberta's yet. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's very interesting, though, right? So what he is sort of hitting on is this idea that I've heard about, you know, I heard, re- I mean, I, I heard an interview recently, I forget the, the scientist's name, but she was talking about the sort of examining of the nutrient content of foods and talking about the idea. I think actually, I think it was on an episode of Freakonomics, and mm-hmm. I think that they were talking about how, you know, there are certain vegetables where how you, whether you eat them raw or cooked, in some cases cooked is better 
even though we have this perception that like we should eat raw carrots and raw is the best way in fact we are our bodies can more easily process the vitamin a and some other things if you cook those things lightly but talking about how the the nutrient the nutrients and the density of that has declined and so it's interesting that he would realize that sort of anecdotally yeah and he was using you know colloquial terms to say uh i can't get enough sustenance from the food here in america from but because we grow everything naturally and there's no chemicals, sure. and there's no engineering in the food back home, he's saying that people are healthier and the food keeps them going. I mean, that same, that same issue came up in an interview that I did here in this studio earlier in the season with a gentleman who'd been in prison for 25 years wow. and was a cook while in prison. And that was one of the things we talked about is how one of the big issues in, in prison is that there isn't enough nutrients in the food. And yeah. so you have a population that is, you know, eating food that isn't enough isn't enough calories isn't enough nutrients and they're angry all the time (laughs) um so what so then from argentina to australia then to the united states or was there anywhere in between oh well it's funny because i had an issue as as a child thinking i'm not very clever i can't speak english properly i I never dreamed i could go to university and have that kind of education because it wasn't something what did your parents do my dad worked for a telecommunications firm in Australia, in Argentina, but as soon as we went to Australia, because nobody spoke English in our family, he became a cleaner. Hmm. So then he opened up a cleaning company, and same with my mum. So my mum worked in food. Um, she worked in a, um, making pastries and, and the rest. Um, but both of them had to just clean toilets. That, that's how we began in, in Australia until they learned English, but then by that time they already had a business in cleaning, so they just had a cleaning business. Um, but, sorry, well... Sorry, yeah, I, I interrupted I got, the I train lost. of thought. <laughs> I was asking what brought you from Australia to the United States. Right, right, and so because I didn't think that I was intelligent enough to attend university, um, I thought, I, I asked the counsel of this old man and he said that the best education you can have is get on an airplane, get a backpack and travel, meet and see people from all walks of life through that, those years in your 20s and then decide what you want to do with your life and what's meaningful to you. And it was the best advice I'd ever had. So what brought me to the United States the first time was my first round of world trip so i ended up doing three years traveling and backpacking around the world back in the day you could buy a around the world ticket fairly cheap right so long as you went in one direction yep. and new york was the first place i ran out of money hmm. so i stayed here and worked illegally to try and get some money <laughs> so i can continue my trip and then i fell in love with the place i didn't think i would but i fell in love with uh, the people here the experience that i had in relation to the place and the people uh, allowed an, uh, an anonymity and a vastness of being that I couldn't experience in other places, in, in, at least in my experience. You know, one of the things I've always loved about living in New York is is that that you know you can you can get on the six train at Union Square and you're anonymous. You're you but then you can step off the train at Forty Second Street and run into an old friend on the platform. Exactly, I love it. Yeah, it's it's a stunning uh, collection of cultures, ideas. And strange people from around the world, like everyone's got a story and strange is the norm. It's okay to be a little quirky, a little weird and 
totally in tune with that urge that is your passion and who you are. I find that more so in New York than any other part of the United States, to be honest, or in other cities or uh, cities or places I've lived in around the world. People that I people that I know outside of the city who I you know, have over the years had conversations with always say, Oh, you know, New Yorkers are so mean. And I say, they're not, New Yorkers aren't mean. (laughs) New Yorkers are busy. Yeah. But New Yorkers have, New Yorkers are so not judgmental. Like everybody's on the subway, everybody's doing their own thing. And I'm not going to judge the person sitting next to me. They're not going to judge me. And that's sort of how we all exist. But I think there's a, there's a perception that that translates into people being like mean. Yeah. No, we get clicky. I, I know. And we get, um, some you know sometimes the pace of the place wears you down i've seen sure. many people come in and like a virus be exited out of new york because the job exploded the relationship exploded or you couldn't become the rock star you've run out of money or whatever it is but people coming here with that passion and that thirst for recreating yourself or creating yourself and those that stay find something in themselves you know uh, that's that's one of the things I love yeah. about being in this place. Absolutely, we're going to take a we're going to take a short break and hear from some of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk uh, a little bit about Buddhism. Happy. Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space and agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. This is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You know, every Tuesday at 3 p.m., I stop in the studio, walk to the far side, sit in my favorite blue chair. If you ever stop by Roberta's, look through the window, and you can see that chair itself. You know, and I've been sitting here for five-plus years. 250 episodes have met some of the best people in the food world, such great culinary minds. 
Um, and recently we just relaunched our website, added a whole bunch of shows, but we still need you, our listeners, our friends, our fans, even guests themselves, to help us out. We, we, you know, we're a 501c3, a nonprofit, and we're not really doing this for the money. We're doing this for the love, for the greater good of the food world as a whole. So get on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, click that little pounding heart in the top right corner, and you know, give what you can, or just keep on listening. We'd love to have you. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. With me today is Hector Marcel, Buddhist teacher and a creator of change. <laughs> hope that's a good hope that's a good way to describe you. Um, before the break, we had started talking about uh, what brought you from Australia to the United States uh, after spending three years traveling around the world you ran out of money down and out in new york right um and you just fell in love with it so did you did you at that time did you just have you been here ever since or no. did you travel no no I, I i made enough money to continue my trip i went back to australia um but in the process i met a girl and i fell madly in love pre-internet pre-cell phones and we're on the phone from australia to here all the time so i decided to move here uh, sold everything in Australia and was going to meet her. When I landed, she had disappeared. When I moved into our apartment, she was gone. I rang her number. No, no trace of her. Hmm. The next day, I called her work. She hadn't showed for a couple of days. I went to her old apartment. It was vacant. Nobody knew where she was. Four, five, six weeks went past. Wow. No word. My heart completely busted. I started picking myself up and started working. Um, and that, that was a beautiful internal tearing apart of what you think expectations will deliver you to. And so I was ripe for a Buddhist teacher. I didn't know this, you know. So um, around the same time, um, I, I started working. I really focused on work and my life, but always at the back of my mind, it's like, what happened? And I have no answers for this disappeared love of mine. We had only been on the phone the day before I got on the plane. Wow. And um, and so I was ripe for understanding one of the first negative impacts of life, our broken heart, you know. And um, I met this Buddhist teacher who was teaching about um, getting rid of an angry boss, you know. And I, I got to talk to him, and it was such a incredible experience. It was a love-hate relationship, you know. And I didn't want to be thinking all the other things he had to say. I just want my fix and continue on my way. But fortunately for me, uh, he implanted in my mind a few ideas that I could never get rid of. Like he juxtapositioned my situation with a whole bunch of other Buddhist concepts that I couldn't reconcile when my life got better, when my work worked out, when my love life improved. Those concepts were still in my head, and so I kept returning and returning and returning to ask him more and more questions, and it's been 20 years now, 1996 hmm. that was. And now I run the Buddhist center where I met him, uh, the Three the Jewels. Three jewels yeah. yeah, And I teach uh, the, the philosophical uh, courses that are taught in a monastic setting in Tibet. So there's a 20-year monastic study on philosophy, Eastern psychology, perception, and all the other uh, texts that relate to a Buddhist practice. And that's been condensed and translated by this teacher 
in the 90s for the very first time into English. And that, so that's what we teach there and I'm teaching that. Hmm. Never thought I'd be doing that when I met him. You sure, know? sure. Uh, but it was really um, to look at, you know, to put it in Buddhist terms, to look at human suffering or, or human change or, or human uh, negative experiences and make sense of them in a way that's logical and then use them to restart your sense of understanding the world um, it helped me do that and so as, as a result I, I never run the show at this place um, yeah it's a it's a great space I happened to be there last week <laughs> I went to went to check it out um, did you ever find out what happened to her yeah. this woman you did finally yeah I can't remember the name of the huge rock group that came through New York the day that night before uh, when I got on the plane but the, she got uh, she got her cold feet about us. The drummer asked her, "Would he come to? Would she come to London with him that night?" So he bought her a plane ticket, and, and she they, just and she went. went to London. <laughs> wow! It was really a really beautiful thing. Looking back at the time, it was horrible. Oh, like sure. I was numb when I saw her. Like uh, I think it was about two months later, she came, apologized. Things didn't work out with the drummer. Surprise! Yeah, and. This person that I was completely in love with, able to move halfway across the world for, stood in front of me crying, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I looked inside my heart and I couldn't have an emotion. I didn't even dislike her. Right. I wanted to at least have some kind of polarity towards her. Sure. I had loved her so much, I couldn't even hate her. I, I well, you nothing. sort of, you need, I mean, the heart, if, if you think about like the broken heart, like you need a heart to love or hate, right? Right. If it's broken. Yeah. It, was, it doesn't work no at all emotion. either way. And that's what shook me so much. And I think that's what I meant by I was right for a Buddhist teacher, somebody that could make sense of yeah. what happens when, because this is a reality in life. Yeah. People he, feel this kind of numbness or, and so on. So he was able to put my mind in the right place, but not a quick fix like I was looking for, right. you know. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it's 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 never a quick fix, right? I mean, I you know <laughs> we want it. No, of course Say we the do. Right Always. Thing. I mean, I you know I started going to yoga classes. I don't know, ten, twelve years ago, because I thought, oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna go to some <laughs> yoga classes. Quick fix. And Fixed. and I I you know I realized at some point pretty quickly. And one of the things that I still find fascinating about that and about you know the idea of you know studying Buddhism and these these sorts of things is that it. it I mean, I'm never going to be good at it. Which is okay, yeah, right? It's yeah. okay. I'm, I'm I'm never going to be good at yoga. I'm never going to be as, you know, as limber as the 19 year old lady next to me. It's just never going to happen. But that's okay. Uh, I do keep funny. going back, and you continue to work it, and you continue to work on it. I think the thing that I find most interesting, which is difficult to communicate instantly and quickly, is the view that you bring to whatever it is. Let's take the yoga example. I could never do the 19 year old yoga poses, right? But internally, I could have that sense of oneness, that complete sense of centeredness, whatever my outer body looks like. Yeah, I could feel the, the balance within my inner being if I place my mind in the correct state through practice, right? Regardless what this limitation of this physical body is able to do. If I yep. had one leg, I'm definitely not going to do that yoga <laughs> yep. pose. But internally, I can have a yoga mind. 
I can be the yogi, that I, and that's possible for absolutely everybody. Sure, you know, absolutely. And I think that's the radical shift in perspective that I noticed. But it's so slippery because we want to look that way, or you know, and, and we and we want to have it all, right? I mean, you you want to you want to fully control something. It's it's one of the things you know when when we first started offering cooking classes at the Brooklyn Kitchen that was that was a big part of it for me was that, you know, realizing that I was interested in learning about food and cooking. I didn't come from a professional background. I didn't learn to cook in a professional kitchen. Right. But I was fascinated by food and all the different tastes and textures and, and you know, um, different cultural, you know, cultural connections to food and, and heritage and celebrations. But I'll never know it all. It's impossible. It's too exactly. big. Yeah, it's too and, big. And that's humbling, right? To, to know that I, this is something that I love and something that I can explore for my entire life and that there's well more than an entire lifetime of exploration to all of these things. And that's the, the beauty of it. A, a sense of understanding that can actually open you up rather than close you off because if you say you have to know absolutely everything about the yoga world or the cooking world or the food world you've already set yourself up for failure sure and and i i the way i think about it too is that if you you know we have the ability right as people to to, to look at the whole and think about the future, right? I mean, they, they say it's one of the things that makes humans different, right? Animals don't have that ability to, like, think about those sorts of time concepts. And, you know, if I'm thinking about the future, like, I don't want, I don't really want it. Like, what happens when I've learned all there is to know about <laughs> cooking and I'm done one day and I'm like, oh, that's yeah. it. I'm finished. Yeah. I'm like, what, then what? Yeah, but there is a centeredness that you can probably find, like a, like a good runner has this kind of single-pointed focus or concentration that's developed, not as a not as a thinking process, but it's it's again a visceral experience, a sense of being. And in in that, I think you could say I know everything. Sure, uh, because it's about your mind being able to to accept all possibilities in food and yoga and the rest. And it doesn't mean you actually know the molecular structure of every amino acid or whatever level of food understanding you want to have. It means that you've entered a state of mind like a good runner has in a long marathon uh, where they are at peace and in sync with this path that they're on. And I think I found that in, in Buddhist practice mm. and certainly getting my way into a yogic state of mind. And sure. it can be applied to everything. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked in the... In the uh in the peer exchange about, you know, that with customer service and how do you, you know, or how do you think about your organization and, and the changes that you want to make in your business to have that relates to customers and employees and vendors and sort of all the people that are connected. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, so you live in Bushwick now. Yeah. How long have you lived in the neighborhood here? Uh, uh, I started coming here in 2008 and I ended up settling here in 2010. Got it. Yeah. So even this, I mean, you've seen it change, right? Oh, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and again, to go back to what we were talking about, the things to love about the city. I mean, people complain about, oh, it used to be so much cooler, better, more interesting or whatever. And, you know, like the the reasons to live in the city is that it changes, I feel. Like, yeah. it, you know, it's it's always shifting. I mean, it's, you know, the same thing happens on a beach where the sand moves, but like people don't really notice that. And, you know. We have this weird myth that, you know, we, we complain about change that we don't like. But if things stayed the same, if, if we got everything we wanted, it's one of the Buddhist teachings. If you got everything you wanted right now, within a millisecond, most of us would be uncomfortable. Yeah, certainly within a minute, certainly within 10 hours. 
So, for example, if I'm stressed and I want to sit down and relax, so you find that perfect chair and you sit and you let your body rest, at some point that becomes an uncomfortable situation. You need to get that body off that chair or you'll go crazy. Yeah. But your mind tells you, no, that chair is going to get me happy and right. I'm going to, you know, right. or the pizza or the food or whatever it is you, you want to keep, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, and you're involved with uh, a couple of coffee shops out in the neighborhood here, right? Yeah, Little, little Skips. Skips. Yeah, yeah, and Little Skips Outpost. Got it. Yeah. How did you get, how did you get involved with, <laughs> with that? And then how did you become part of that? Australians became coffee snobs about 10 years ago. And the entire culture has, I mean, Australia's really far away. Surrounded by ocean. There's nothing to do. <laughs> so you become really good at something. And for some reason, everybody got into coffee. Like you could find exquisite coffees in the middle of the outback. Hmm. Yeah? Well done espressos, great cappuccinos. People get passionate about perfecting this art. And it became this, this Australia-wide thing. And we didn't really notice. And I came to New York and it was terrible. Coffee sucked. It was horrible. So I was always in search of the two or three places, you know, in 2007, 2008, which actually could make coffee like my palate was used to. And I found little skips. And their coffees, their baristas were amazing. Yeah. And it was hip and edgy and nobody was out here way back, you know. Right. And... um, and so I, I just became really good friends with the lady that started at Linda. And we helped each other. You know, I helped her with a business and she wanted to open a second shop. So I became an investor and now I'm involved. It's, and it's a pleasure because the number one thing about Little Skips and many places around here, including Roberta's and Momo's in, in this part of Bushwick, is this sense of community. The people that have come to New York, you know, pulled by a passion they find each other at these food places, you know, at this place where we consume and, you know, flip open the internet and, right. and the, the laptop and, and connect. But uh, it's a, the number one thing that got me into Skips was the sense of community. You know, even though the coffee was what drew me there, coffee is an excuse to exchange. Food is an, ex, it's an excuse to exchange. And here in Bushwick, we... We tend to exchange the most honest, open, unashamedly passionate side of ourselves because it's okay, because it's New York. Right, yeah. right. That's great. Well, we are, we're pretty much out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Anything that you do? Anything that you wanted to, yeah, to bring sure. up on? Yeah, on the, so a couple of things. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we have every year we go to uh, Nepal, and, and right. this year we, right. we've helped... Uh, uh, rebuild a couple of schools but there's a fundraiser at the chocolate factory just around the corner here uh, every valentine's day so we celebrate the love that we have for each other in the west at fine and raw at fine and raw yeah. chocolate yeah and um and so everybody's invited to come valentine's day i think it's uh, this it's the friday night or something this and, the, and the name the name of that group of people want to look at it is uh 108 lives right yeah 108 108lives.org yeah, yeah. But um, beyond that, I want to say that in that development, so many people have come and helped. Um, and I got to meet incredible people. And one of those people that, that has that flavor is you. So I want to say thank you for putting the show together, for sharing your passion, and for adding to the value that this little hub of Bushwick has, which is the radio and your passion for what you do. Yeah, so I, I think you should get a shout out. To- <laughs> 
thank, thank you. Thank you for that, Hector. Um, well, I want to thank everybody for supporting me and Heritage Radio. This is, the, in fact, the final show of my first <laughs> season on Heritage Radio. Uh, we will be back on January 6th uh, of next year with some, some great guests coming up. Uh, big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who helps me produce the show, and Liz Smith, who engineers the show every week. And it is the, the end of the year, and that's when organizations like Heritage Radio are always asking for support. Um, if you really enjoy this show or other shows, I would really appreciate if you would become a member of Heritage Radio or donate anything, a quarter, a dollar, a thousand dollars, a million dollars if you happen to have it in your pocket. Uh, and you can find out more about Heritage Radio at heritageradio.org. Um, thanks very much. See you next year. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 